it's kind of always been the biggest thing for me. And it's definitely, you know, other than being an Indian American, I feel like journalism is like the very big part of my identity. This episode is with Natasha Mascarenas, a reporter focused on early stage startups for TechCrunch. It's always fun to talk to people who love what they do, and we went deep on asking more thoughtful questions, listening better, and telling more compelling stories. But it's also really cool to talk to people who are more than just their work, and I think it's pretty clear that Natasha is definitely both. Hope you enjoy. to the state of startups and all of that, how have you been handling all this? Just because I'm sure it's crazy to get started with a new job during a pandemic. Yeah. So I, I think I had three days in the office before we ended up working from home indefinitely. And so I only got the free snacks for three days, but I'm, I'm doing well, all things considered. My family's in New Jersey, so it just feels like I'm living in two time zones right now, but I'm happy to be stable, healthy, and able to do groceries. Yeah, definitely. Same here. So you were at Crunchbase News for about a year, and now you've made the jump over to TechCrunch. What does, and I'm just really curious about this, what does the the morning in the life or a day in the life of a TechCrunch reporter look like? I definitely have a really weird take on this since most of my job here has been, like you said, during this <laughs> shelter in place. But but these days, normal hours, eight to five, six, or seven. And it's been like kind of this, for the first two weeks of my job, it was like breaking COVID news all the time. And then, you know, after writing like 30 stories in two weeks, kind of had this meeting with my editor and we were just like, let's stick to the basics of why I was hired, which is seed and early stage reporting. So it's kind of been a recalibration for the past month and a half to stick to those core thoughts and and then add in coronavirus because all news is news at this point. But I'm thankful that I'm with a team that, you know, tells me to get off Slack if I'm on Saturday at 3 p.m. or if I'm on Friday at 10 p.m., which I have been. But it's, it's nice to also have a whole team to, to stay online with in case I just want to be reporting the news so I don't have to think about the impending doom personally. No, 100%. And then forgive me if this is kind of an ignorant question, but I'm not super familiar with what the day-to-day of an actual real-life reporter looks like. So if you had to break down, like, first couple hours of your day, are there any particular deadlines you need to hit? Yeah, so, you know, it looks different for every newsroom, of course, but for me, I try and do at least one story a day. With breaking news, it could be as simple as, like, you have 10 minutes, you've got this embargo and you have 10 minutes. That's happened with Instacart a couple times. <laughs> and other than that, I, I would kind of break it up in like, we have embargoed funding rounds or exclusives. Those, you know, you take 48 hours and have this really nice time to, to deepen the story. We have longer features, which is where a lot of like, a lot of my content lives on the extra crunch side. So we get three days to a week to write those stories. And then of course there's like the scoops that happen and you kind of break the news first where it's a mad rush. So, you know, every day looks a lot different. I try and do at least one story a day. But these days, it feels like the news cycle, you know, if, if I wanted to, I could probably do breaking news all day. And we definitely have people on our team that are, you know, hustling and doing like, again, 30 stories a week or something to, to catch up with that. Yeah, just to zoom out, and this is purely anecdotal, but I'm definitely seeing some different startups fundraise. I know VCs have said it's business as usual. They're open for business. What are you (laughs) hearing and seeing just because you're definitely plugged in with the early stage scene? 
Yeah, so I, I talked to a lot of seed and early stage founders who are who have been gearing up, you know, in this up market for, for their first fundraise and watching all these other startups also benefit from that up market at first. And obviously that's kind of slowed, at least dialogue wise. I feel like the question now after the first initial shock of coronavirus has gone from, you know, are VCs open for business? Fine, they're open for business. But now it's like, how are they doing business? Are they only using the networks of previous CEOs they've met at least once? Are they really going out there and trying to meet organically? Are they finding their deals only through, you know, Twitter DMs at this point? So I think the conversation has moved slightly from fine, everyone's open for business. Now we just need to see how they're doing it and how they can raise their hand externally and be like, okay, yes, we're doing, we're making deals. Here is our money. I promise you (laughs) this. Yeah, absolutely. And then I guess a more niche focus of yours that you've gone deep on, which is definitely a hot topic, is ed tech. Can you talk a little more about what you're seeing there? I feel like education, until I read Michelle Obama's Becoming, education had not been like summed up so well to me. Um, I don't know, have you you read her book by any chance? No, we actually had a past guest suggest that, so I definitely need to. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Well, I I highly recommend, I guess she did the narration of how important education is so well that it really resonated with me in a way that it never has before. And it made me think a lot about my privilege and about how education was so important to me and definitely, you know, led me to getting full-time jobs in in my dream career. Anyways, education was important to me, but then I joined TechCrunch and then like within the first week, Stanford closed college campuses. And that was a pretty quick news hit that I was like, this is a big deal. What's going to happen to all the Stanford founders? But then like the beat never really died down. Like EdTech education and how it's being dealt with during a pandemic, you know, it became this evergreen topic, at least for the next who knows how many months. I would hope that it is a positive. Obviously, it sucks in the short term, but in the long term that there is more of a focus on education. I know everyone on Twitter has an opinion. What is your perspective on any shifts that you think will stick coming out of this? Undergraduate students, they need the social aspect, like the physical aspect of going to college. If it's possible for them, if they have the means to do it, it's so vital for growth. Like when I think of college, I I think of a few professors that definitely changed my life and changed the way I report. But I also think a lot about the personal growth. So I don't think masses of people are going to stop going to physical campuses. I do think, though, that the way content is delivered and taught will look a little different. And that's completely based on founders I've talked to. But I imagine a time where asynchronous education is is more possible. Like now there's not an 8 a.m. lecture that you have to attend, but maybe... 24 hours where you can attend this online video of a lecture. And I think we're going to see more hybrid solutions. So a part of me really hopes that it's going to become more accessible for students who have really demanding jobs while they're students on campus, that it's a more inclusive world for them. I I think I had a bunch of friends that, you know, went straight from classes to full-time jobs, back to classes, and it was just crazy to manage. So I'm hoping some of that happens. And I guess on the K through 12 side, my favorite quote I've gotten so far is an investor in K through 12 saying, you know, no one's going to ever say that remote education is ideal for K through 12. And hearing a K through 12 investor themselves say it made me kind of also realize that as much hype as it's getting right now, it's not going to be ideal. It's going to go back to being a tool after it's done being a necessity right now. Even before college, did you have any idea that this is something that you would want to do? So 
you know, I was just talking to, talking to my mom the other day about this. In second grade, I was nominated for a Young Writers Conference, and it meant the world to me. She obviously stole some of my thunder earlier this week and told me that the rest of the class was also nominated with me. Um, <laughs> I just didn't see them. But literally, I'm not joking. Since then, I have been like, I'm going to be a writer. And it went from doing these really like sweet, I won't say lame, sweet poems about like fall foliage to <laughs> journalism. Because at some point, it clicked to me, I would say around sixth grade when I joined the newspaper club in school, that journalism would be a, in some ways, more stable route than being a freelance creative writing poet slash author, which is not off my list yet. I definitely want to write a book, definitely want to be a creative writer at some point. But yeah, I mean, I guess since second grade, then sixth grade newspaper club, then fast forward to high school, I was editor in chief of my high school newspaper. Then college, I majored in journalism. It's kind of always been the biggest thing for me. And it's definitely, you know, other than being an Indian American, I feel like journalism is like the very big part of my identity. It's definitely like the first or second bullet point if I had to describe myself. So it it just, I guess, really resonated with me through being a good writer and then also finding somehow people in this world are trusting the fact that I have to say something, which is a lot of responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit more about something you touched on right at the end there? As an Indian American, how did it go over with your parents when you mentioned to them that journalism was something you wanted to focus on in college? They were not a huge fan until they knew that there was no other, like there was no other route that I was even potentially giving a chance. So, you know, I have to give them so much, so many snaps for supporting that kind of out of necessity that I was going to apply to college. And, you know, I kind of think I promised them at some point I was going to double major and not just journalism. So they would get off my back, but didn't do that for sure. (laughs) But no, I mean, they were, they were really supportive of it. I think it clicked for them when I got my first internship at the Boston Globe. It was finally a paper that they recognized. It was a paper that they could show off to their friends about. And then it started clicking with them that this is something that I was probably good at. And luckily, my grandfather on my mom's side, he was kind of this ally from before they even were. And I think him being so vocal about how I could be so successful in journalism definitely rubbed off on them. Once I saw that there was success there, they saw other Indian role models there and they saw like I was at least getting some kind of response and feedback from greater people. Yeah. Can you talk a little more about coworkers or role models or family that shaped the way you approach your writing process, whether that's specifically for a piece for TechCrunch or maybe something on your Substack? Oh my gosh, there's so many different routes I could go to with this. But I guess I'll have to say like my biggest end-all be-all mentor in journalism was my professor in college, Mitchell Zuckoff. He, if you do a quick Google search, I won't even do him justice, but he wrote 13 Hours, which was this really famous book that turned into a movie with, I believe, John Krasinski. So that's that. But, you know, beyond that, he was my professor freshman year and then also senior year. And I guess I'll list a couple of his favorite lessons that he taught me. One was listening, like listen for five seconds after you think someone's done speaking and you'll probably get a gem. And it's this idea that stories beget other stories. Like if you pause and if you just ask them anything else, you might find the actual story in that last five minutes of the conversation. And that has happened so many times for me. The other biggest aspect was just thinking of unconventional sources when you interview people for stories. Like if you have a story about the new Facebook office 
interview the coffee shop that has been around the corner for 15 years and hear what they have to say. And he was just, I, I would email him like random stories I had found on the fly just because we would discuss them so much. And then the last thing I'll say, because I'm going to ramble about him and definitely embarrass him, is he wrote this lead when JFK Jr. died. He was at the Boston Globe and everyone was writing the same story. And he he told us the story because it's like, when you have everyone writing the same story, you need to tell it differently. Like tell it the way that Natasha would tell it, tell it the way that Mitch would tell it. And he ended up painting this beautiful different lead that really resonated with me. It was something about the art of crafting that he really sold to me and I'm now just I guess forever beholden to his teachings because he was really the special person continues to be (laughs) yes I think two really awesome paths we could go down there one and you brought it up was your process for trying to ask more thoughtful questions and interview well and then the other path could potentially be the future of media and something like Substack do either of those speak to you more I think there's like two big buckets of theory that I use when I interview someone for a story One is like prep, but not to the point of finishing sentences. So, I mean, in my first couple years of reporting, I would always finish a sentence for someone. It was this really weird tactic I would do to be like, we're friends, like, let me finish your sentence for you. But that would cut quotes in half. (laughs) And it would do exactly the opposite of pausing more and just letting people talk. So I would say prep as much as you need to, but don't prep to the point where you ask questions and then answer them yourselves. It sounds simple, but... If you tell someone, hey, I I saw you in New Jersey, they're going to feel a little less on the defense maybe, and they're going to feel a little bit more understood, and they might, you know, skip some of the formalities. So I I always recommend doing at least five minutes of prep that goes such a long way. This was, again, a a Mitchell Zuckoff tip, but write your questions down before if you have them all planned out and look at them only once or twice and just take the conversation as it will. The the biggest tip I got from one of my colleagues at the Globe, Nestor Ramos, who was a Pulitzer finalist this time, was your observations, if they're rooted in reality, are worth mentioning in the story. So if you think someone brightened up at the mention of this one year in their life, don't just be like, oh, that's probably in my head. Pause the interview, screw your list of questions, and go back to that one year. And you might just get like, this really special gem of why they became a founder or why this is the problem they're looking to solve. That's great. I think that's also just very generalizable to everyone, not just if you're a reporter, but asking more thoughtful questions, having better conversations, and doing better doing better with people so yeah it's it's so funny I mean I obviously tout this like very thoughtful asking of questions but you know one time I was doing an interview it was like 2 p.m on a Friday and I went to this coffee shop and I sat down and I was like okay so tell me this and then the person kind of just looked at me and she was like how are you and I was like oh my god it is so easy to get wrapped up especially now in some way to just want to just chug along and we're all so busy And her pausing me to be like, hey, just was wondering genuinely, how are you? It just completely was a slap in the face in a really good, positive, needed way to slow down. So if you ever find yourself like getting to the point where you're not being thoughtful in your questions, and if you're asking for someone's time, I suggest like, I guess, pausing and taking a walk or doing a couple jumping jacks because I've definitely found myself there. It's not a perfect perfect rule. It's it's definitely wishful thinking in some ways, but always here to be corrected when I just jump right into being all business talk. Yeah, the value of small talk. And I guess that also ties into what we think the new normal might look like, what you think the new normal might look like in your job, maybe a few months from now. How do you think it differs from your current day to day? Mm, yeah, I mean, 
I think we're already starting to see it change. Like coronavirus went from being the story that I was writing every single day to part of the story I'm writing every single day. So I think startups will continue to have to talk about it and it will continue to be part of how I cover early stage and seed startups, but it won't be like the way in. I think the most interesting startups right now that I'm I'm already starting to like, I guess, look for and vet for one night before I cover them is like, were they important before the virus and are they going to be important after? And if they're not important after we have a vaccine, then, you know, it doesn't mean I don't cover them because they could be doing something really important and really present, but it changes like, I guess, the energy that we're going to write about it with. And that's the biggest change is I think we're going to in some ways, quiet down solely the coronavirus voice and and add it into this story. And I think there was so much noise, like it's just consistent loops of noise. And we're going to see some of that noise go to different areas. I'm really excited to see how EdTech goes from being this really hot category that I'm playing a part in covering because it's hot to going to consolidation or to going to new trends or just being completely wrong about some of the stories I'm writing. Like, I can't wait to be wrong <laughs> because it means in some way we're moving forward. So I think that is kind of what I'm looking forward to is like some more checks and balances on this mad rush right now. And just to double down on something you brought up right there, sifting through noise, at a personal level, how do you think about some of the content that you consume as someone who creates it? I have started doing this tip that my former coworker, Trisha Thadani from the San Francisco Chronicle, she told me, was, which was like, wake up and for the first 30 minutes, don't look at your phone. It just sounds so obvious, but I think that remembering to do that is really helpful because the first thing I think of in the morning then all of a sudden isn't Brex's latest move, but it's like, just like calling my mom and making coffee. And maybe like, yeah, putting like a splash of almond extract in it. And like, that is the depth of my thoughts for the first 30 minutes of the morning. I think that goes such a long way in being able to compartmentalize. And then on the actual content consumption front, obviously I'm on Twitter all day. I'm, I'm on our personal team communication services to see all the, all the breaking news as it happens. But I try and push other content into my into my view, like that doesn't have to do with me, like just go on Bon Appetit for 30 minutes, whether that's during lunch or during the off hours. So during off hours, I don't really read that much tech news. I might listen to a podcast, but like the podcast will be like about Kara Swisher and May Musk, Elon Musk moms. So like that <laughs> might be the level that I will engage with tech after hours, um, which, you know, some people might think that means that I am not on top of it as much as I should be. But I think that's the sanity that I need at this point for sure. <laughs> No, I think we could all do better about that. I could definitely do better about not checking my phone first. Yeah, what is what is your, like, how has your whole media consumption changed? Just to turn the podcast on you for a second, I'm, I'm so curious. Yeah, I think this is something we've been asking our guests because we're trying to be better about it. We're like, okay, if you're just getting quick bites from all of these different sources all day, from Slack, from Twitter, from email it might be better to consume something long form on your weekends. And maybe that's not necessarily related to the things that you're consuming on a daily basis. So I guess the difference between written and audio, also long form and short form, I don't know if those are distinctions that you focus on. You know, any person who has been in journalism, it's like journalism 101, you have to start with the small breaking news to grow to the long form. And I think some people feel the opposite. So I guess I can't say it's journalism 101, but in order to get good at structure, in order to get good at craft, you have to start small and then grow big. So if I only focus on 
280 character all day, I will definitely lose out on that really smart structure. So I've definitely been dedicating my my weekends to long form. And then I do have my sub stack as well, where I, I guess I practice a lot with form there too. It's longer and it's more free flowing in a way, but it's not tech related at all. It's about like personal life and it's about mindfulness and moving to SF from the East coast my whole life. So I think that that is a place that I've been able to like, I guess also change up my pace of writing to go from like using like series A and series B to just random like musings about being an Indian American. And I think Substack is really important to talk about in the context of the future of media, just because on the surface it can feel a little annoying where you're like, okay, like I've read this publication for a long time. Why would I pay now to read it? Something like Extra Crunch. And I think yeah. a lot of the thesis behind Substack and some of the, the trends we're seeing in the space are really interesting. Yeah. So I think Substack is really special. I think subscription is obviously the future. It's been really great to be on the Extra Crunch team and build it out and then see how we are consistently doing better at serving our readers. Like I'm so happy when the things that get us excited are the things that also get readers excited and get them to convert. Because it's like I mentioned earlier on, the best feeling is when you say something that someone else has feelings about, period. I think Substack is really great. It's it's simple. I don't, th- I don't think it's unique to Substack, but Substack made it easier than ever to start your own newsletter and make it look nice. And I, I started it because my old editor, Holden Page, bless his soul, but he was kind of like, you know, it's not about thinking of a cute gimmick or thinking of, you know, what exactly can I provide that no one else is providing? It's like, your story is unique. So just tell it and you are going to get some people to subscribe and you don't need to have, this is not your whole world right now. Just start it and see what happens. And like, I'm almost at 1000 subscribers, <laughs> fingers crossed, but it's, it's been really cool to like, I guess, have an audience that's only mine. It's not TechCrunch's audience. It's not Crunchbase's audience. It's not Boston University's alum audience but it's like Natasha's own audience and it's really cool to see that I think we'll see more journalists shifting we already are seeing some journalists but we'll see more of them shifting professionally to Substack but personally it's just nice to also be building your own credibility so you know I want to be at TechCrunch for a really long time but it's really nice to know that I have people that are in my corner that you know, maybe wouldn't have found me from TechCrunch, but found me from something else. And that just get to keep them on my team. Yeah, a thousand true fans. So. Yeah, exactly. I like definitely keep getting unsubscribes. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, I guess I never checked the unsubscribe feature. Like you can get an email 24 hours after you post a blog and see how many people unsubscribed. Never looked at it until recently. And now I'm starting to see how many people have always been unsubscribing per newsletter. And that's always fun to realize that you're losing fans from time to time. <laughs> but who cares? <laughs> Okay, this is a big lofty question. I'll just preface it with that. So 60 years from now, is there anything in particular that you want to be known for? Is there anything you want to have worked on? Is there like a a specific type of person that you want to be just because you've mentioned writing more long form, potentially writing a book? This sounds so narcissistic, but I do feel like I've heard from so many people at this point, at least that I've been able to sum up a lot of their, you know, feelings and concerns in words that they haven't found themselves. And I would love to write a book about short essays with that. I would love to write something that is about the people in my life that to me, they are these the best people ever. And I want to, I guess, t- somehow tell that story, but get other people to care about it. I want to write a book with each chapter dedicated to a different person in my life. But then I want a random person in the world to be able to read that and somehow find some kind of connection with it. So that's, I guess, like a very personal goal. But Broadly, I want to 
be a reporter and be a writer that other people think of as like someone that helped them at some point. So much of my personal growth so far, and I'm still so early in my career, but can be boiled down to people just handholding at certain times and getting me to that next job. The reason I got to Crunchbase was because I did a podcast with Alex Wilhelm, and then he was the editor-in-chief of Crunchbase, so he, he brought me over to Crunchbase, and now we're working together at TechCrunch. So I think that there are so many people that have helped me that I would love to continue to, to do that. And then finally, at some point, I want to be an adjunct professor because I just really can see myself doing one-hour rants about journalism. And I <laughs> would love to do that, as we're doing right now. I would love to do that for, for students because I don't think I would be the journalist I am today if I didn't have some really important professors that were so nerdy about it that you couldn't help but be inspired. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And then we can definitely link the TechCrunch Equity Podcast. Yeah, no, um, I was—I actually made a note. I was like, I need to do a really embarrassing plug, but I do, yeah, I do Equity on Fridays at 6 a.m. PST with my wonderful colleagues, Alex Wilhelm and Danny Crichton. We talk about the startup news of the week, but also make a couple of jokes. And we try and just bring positive energy and make it like a tech podcast that isn't tiring to listen to or one that you can listen to while doing your before your morning commute at least so yeah would love for anyone to check it out and give some feedback we just did a feedback form so we are welcoming any and all suggestions awesome so we will link that we'll definitely link your Substack as well where if someone has a tip or if they just want to get in touch where is the best place for them to find you yeah so i'm at twitter at nmask underscore and that's mask with a c and then my email is natasha.m at techcrunch.com I'm sure all of us, our inboxes are crazy, so this is extra for me to say, but if I don't respond, it's not because I don't like you. It might just be because I'm slow at this point to respond, but I definitely look through literally every email, so we'll always ping back. Um, and yeah, definitely Natasha.m at TechCrunch. Natasha at TechCrunch is a different Natasha that's at TechCrunch, who's equally wonderful, but you won't get me if you email Natasha at TechCrunch. <laughs> awesome. Asher and I always ask our guests this. Are there any books or podcasts that have had a large impact on your life? Okay, well, I guess I already hinted one, which was Becoming by Michelle Obama. And I'm in the middle of reading Pachinko. That book is really great. And it tells you like why a story that is not necessarily your story or not something that you can immediately relate to can still be so important and teach you so many lessons. You know, if you need to laugh, the this one podcast I've been listening to is like super raunchy. It's called Girls Gotta Eat. And it is getting me through my runs these days because it's just so absurdly funny. So that's that's my other, my, my light lift podcast for, for any of you. <laughs> awesome. And Sasha, a thousand thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for such thoughtful questions. And yeah, I'm excited to listen in. I went live. This has been Ethan Lee Tyson with Worth. You can find show notes below or at worth.card.co. That's card with two R's. Thanks for your time.